And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending upon where, whether you're in the Far East or in the Pacific or in Europe or on the top of uh, Mount Everest, if you're listening to us there. You know, we have people, if you go to the other side of midnight and you look at that globe, we have people logging on from every possible place on the planet. Now, I won't say like uh, Dr. Uh, Doctor, like General Mattis did the other night at the um, uh, dinner in, in, in New York, every corner of the globe, because <clears throat> globes don't have corners, just a, just a little nitpick there, but uh, we literally have listeners from all over, we're in 100 and some 90, 190-some countries, I think. So welcome one and all in any time zone, any particular weather or climate you're currently experiencing. Tonight we're going to be doing something dangerous. Every time I get on this show into areas of political concern, I get hate mail. And I did some not really overtly political stuff with Rick Levine a couple, uh, three weeks ago. We were discussing, you know, the age we're living in and why uh, this current president is unlike any other. And I got really amazing email that was uh, on the on the very um, negative side uh, from Trump supporters, people who think that I'm unfairly attacking the president. Hey, let me clue you in on something. As Nick Mulvaney said the other afternoon in the White House press room, get over it. We have something called the First Amendment. It comes before the Second Amendment for a reason. Without the freedom to express our opinions, to present facts, to present research, to prevent some kind of logical assessment of the state of the planet, which we're going to try to do tonight, I mean, what's the point of the whole damn thing? And for people to get so excised because I say a, a bad or a rude word about the president, the president is a public person. No one except Donald Trump volunteered to run for the presidency of the United States and have 300 plus million people judging and critiquing and looking at what he's doing on our behalf 24-7. It's the perfect Perfect, you know, really. It's the perfectly logical way the system is designed to work. He does stuff, we look at it, we render our opinions. Some of them are positive. I mean, I don't know whether anybody out there, any Trump supporters, have tallied up the number of times I've said supportive things for this president. That's not going to be the case tonight because the case we're in tonight is so perilous by the president's own decision, no one that we're aware of pressed him into what he has done and the doors he has opened and the cascade of history that may flow from his one phone call. I mean, I, I really, when I wrote the promo for Blog Talk, I was reminded of the cascade of idiotic events that led us into the first global war, World War I. And that night, I had the benefit of uh, Dr. Richard Spence to kind of walk us through that cascade of insanity that led to millions of people dying. It's really shocking how history can turn on a phrase or on someone going into a sandwich shop for, you know, roast beef or something as trivial, I mean, incredibly trivial. In this case, 
hopefully we're going to come out the other side like we went in, which is in okay condition. But you never can be sure because now we are in the nuclear age, as you were going to see tonight. Before we get to uh, my guest, let me hit, you, hit a couple of uh, high spots here with news. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, click on that beautiful banner that can see it prepared um, regarding Trump, Erdogan, and the czar. I hope you all caught that little reference. You know, the czar, of course, is Putin, a modern 21st century czar of, of Russia. As I will obviously get feedback from uh, uh, Rick uh, Spence, if I'm not correct in that assessment, but I think I am, I think you could definitely uh, tabulate the things the czar used to do with the things that Putin is doing and make a kind of a one-to-one correlation, particularly when he says of his own volition that the worst part of Russian history was when the Soviet Union was disbanded uh, in 1991. And that's a very czarist uh, point of view. Anyway, um, if you go to that banner, which is for tonight, October 20th, has Erdogan and Trump and Putin there at the lower left-hand corner, click on that. That will take you to tonight's guest page, same banner, and just uh, either click on my items right under where it says uh, fast link items. Click on me. That will take you to my section of radio with pictures. The top two items, again, are the Bahamas. I do not want these desperate people in their desperate situation to be forgotten. The news, you know, the news gods had moved on. Uh, Hurricane Dorian is like it was a thousand years ago. We don't hear about it. We don't see it. We don't see the pictures. We don't see the tragedy. We don't see the anguish of families and and you know the the Nagasaki-like conditions where that Category Five hung over those islands for two full days, grinding the surface into dust. So if you go to that first link, you'll see some of those heartbreaking pictures. The second link is your action items. There's a whole listing of charities there, Project Hope, Team Rubicon, the Bahama Red Cross, et cetera, et cetera. Click on one of those or search out for your own and send them, you know, any, any, just five bucks. If you multiply five bucks by a million people, that's $5 million to buy food and bottled water and ways to cook food and sanitation and all of the accoutrements that you need when civilization around you has been totally destroyed. And there are echoes to some things we're going to talk about later tonight because this could happen to all of us. We are poised on the brink of an historical set of events that if 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 the dice are cast wrongly, we could be everyone listening to my voice right now could be in the same situation as those poor Bahamians except it would be sans hurricane. It could be because of a global thermonuclear war. We are so much closer than anyone seems to believe. And we're going to get into the details and what you know is being done and what might be done. And this morning, I hope, will be a very educational um, experience for everyone. Item number three. I keep looking back and I keep thinking of how history turns on these incredibly trivial, random little things that set in motion enormous forces. And there's got to be some underlying 
metaphysics to that. Um, again, we're probably going to discuss that this morning. This is a news item from Fox. And, you know, we try to present all sides here. And uh, Fox had a story, a very important story, how according to background sources, military source in this case in the Pentagon, where things went off the rails is when the president went off script during his call on Sunday, the 6th of October, to Erdogan, the president of Turkey. He had a list of talking points. He had a list of things that he was supposed to stay with. That's what advisors and expertise surrounding the executive branch is supposed to bring to the president, an enormous amount of expertise, literally hundreds of man years of expertise. And in this phone call, apparently the president simply dismissed all that, didn't tell anybody he was going to basically say to Erdogan, well, we're we're just going to kind of leave and you guys can clean up what you've always wanted to do. Now, why do we say that with such certitude? Because several days ago on the tarmac at uh, in Fort Worth when he was down there with a rally, the president stood in front of television cameras and he basically said the same thing. You know, the Turks have been long suffering and they wanted to do this for a long time. And now this will give them the chance to clean out the area, which is incredibly um, tendacious when it comes to the concepts of ethnic cleansing, mass murder, etc. I mean, this this requires some deep and important analysis, which we're going to try to, uh, with the help of Dr. Spence, do tonight. Now, if you don't think the stakes are important, you want to go to point number four, my item number four. There has been published, you know, as part of a declassification that this government has been operating under for decades, there is an um, extraordinary report from the nonprofit National Security Archive, which has documents from the U.S. government going back through the Cold War, back to the beginnings uh, in the early 1960s when people like uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, basically said about the Soviet Union and China in terms of Chinese communists and the potential for nuclear war with both the Soviets and the Chinese, bomb them back to the Stone Age. And when you read these documents, I mean, they're extraordinarily relevant to our situation now because some of them in question pertain to what was called the Single Integrated Operational Plan or PSYOP which governs the numerous war plans and their associated options that basically determine how Americans would fight a nuclear war. And in June of 1964, senior military leaders, including Air Force Chief of Staff uh, LeMay, were sent a staff review of the current then PSYOP, and there were extraordinary recommendations, such as in order to destroy the will and ability of the Sino-Soviet bloc to wage war, remove the enemy from the category of a major industrial power and assure a post-war balance of power favorable to the United States. Should these options give more stress to populations as the main target, asked a question. The answer was the Pentagon war plans included the deliberate destructions of cities of millions of people, which would destroy the urban and industrial backbone of these communist nations. Quote again from the PSYOP 
This would result in greater population casualties in that a larger proportion of the urban population, meaning in these two countries, may be placed at risk. In other words, if you look at the casualty numbers projected, they were looking at a 30% fatality rate as a goal for 217 I'm sorry, 212 million people um, in uh, uh, Russia and 709 million in China. Um, I mean, these are staggering, incomprehensible, immoral numbers. And if you're looking at a nuclear war, whether it's by deliberate design or it's by accident, um, that's what you're facing. And that at some level, as we're going to talk about tonight, because of what the president has done in Syria, that is the potential that we could be facing as a cascade of increasingly bizarre decisions and or blunders take place in the next few weeks or months. Because unless you have a stable plan and a status quo ante in place, which is what our thousand troops in cooperation with the Kurds in northern Syria for the last half decade had been maintaining, once you begin to move major powers into new regions where other powers are trying to confront them, i.e. American dominance of the Middle East versus Russian dominance of the Middle East, you are looking at an extraordinarily unbalanced and frankly unpredictable situation where, I mean, in chaos theory, in theory, it only depends on the flight of one butterfly on the other side of the world to change a hurricane. Speaking of natural disasters, item number five, there's been a new study out of California that the uh, uh, one of the California faults, if it really let loose, could create in the not-too-distant future an eight-magnitude earthquake. And you want to read that carefully because this is a serious study. Um, we have been overdue for a major earthquake um, for many, 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 many years in California. Um, the last one that occurred was out in the desert. And in fact, it was under China Lake under suspicious circumstances. It was a six, give or take. An eight, I believe, if I remember the Richter scale correctly, an eight would be 100 times greater. It would level major parts of Los Angeles or San Francisco, depending upon the distance to the epicenter. And again, you'd be in the same position if you don't go through that, that the Bahamians tonight on those two northern islands are, where they have no power, no water, no food, no electricity, no anything. So go back to those top links, click on those charity organizations, and please give whatever you can. Um, my guest tonight is Dr. Richard Spence, a professor of history at the University of Idaho, his interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti-Semitism. His major public works include Boris Savkinov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905-1925. Richard is the author of numerous articles on revolutionary Russia, intelligence and national security, the journal for the study of anti-Semitism, American communist history, 
The Astarian, New Dawn, and many other publications. He's been interviewed on numerous programs and has been a commentator consultant for the History Channel, the International Spy Museum. We should ask him about that. There is an International Spy Museum? Hmm. Radio Liberty and documentaries produced by the Russian Cultural Foundation. He's also, if I might add, the uh, resident historian for the other side of midnight. So, Dr. Spence, Rick, as you love to be called, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, as my grandmother used to say, uh, it's nice being had. <laughs> anyway, um, this is an incredibly contentious subject we're tackling tonight. So I guess since I kind of painted the background, we should start with the obvious question. Who the hell are the Kurds and why should we care? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that here we are talking about the Middle East again. It's, it's always interesting how that, how that keeps coming up. And, and I think in some past shows, we've touched on the Kurds. Uh, so people who might have listened before will hear some things that they might have heard before and maybe something new, hopefully. Hey, in this modern world, Rick, redundancy never is superfluous because there's too much to keep track of. Yes, a, a certain degree of redundancy is necessary. It's just you don't want to cross the border. But um, who are the Kurds? Um, if you added all the Kurds together, well, let me direct people's attention to my item number one. Okay. All right. And if you look at my item number one, it is a map of, you know, your geography. That's the Middle East. All right. There's Turkey up in one corner and there's Saudi Arabia. But what this map shows, it, it shows countries. It has borders and the names of countries. But it actually shows the map, not the political map, but the ethnic map. And so if you look at this, it's going to look like somebody spilled paint all over the place. Uh, and if what this really shows are the the ethnic divisions, which have little to do in most cases with the political divisions. So, for instance, um, if you want to find out who the Kurds, who are the Kurds appear on this map, well, is there a country called Kurdistan? No, there is not. There never has been. A lot of Kurds would like there to be a Kurdistan. That's one of the issues that maybe we'll tackle, and it's one of the issues that's involved in the, in the current situation. But if you look, and you'll notice that up towards the top of the map, there's a very sort of dark red area. kind of looks like dried blood. And you'll notice that there's a large area. If you can see the countries, Syria and Iraq, up to the north, there's this large red area. But you'll notice that there are other spots of it. If you look over into the green area over to the left, you'll notice there's this dark red area right in the middle of that, little red blobs. And then if you look further over to the right, up above the orange area, which are the Persians in Iran, there's some more of that dark red area. Wherever you see that dried blood color, that's where the Kurds live. And one of the things I'd note is that they don't all live in one place. One of the things about actual human populations, ethnic groups, nationalities, tribes, however you want to call them, is they have this tendency to be scattered around, to often live in an area, but often they tend to share that area with other tribes, nations, ethnic groups, etc. And that, again, if you look closely, I wish this map was bigger, but if you look closely, also notice that in that sort of dried blood area, that sort of plum red area, you'll see there are little blobs of color in that. There are green ones and yellow ones. Yellow ones are Arabs. The green ones are generally Turks. So it's not a solid area. 
Can I interrupt so, for a second and ask a very sure. fundamental question? Yeah. My understanding of history is that like likes like. In other words, people with like backgrounds, like futures, like histories, like, you know, uh, you know, familiar relationships, whatever, kind of hang out together. How do we have these disparate ethnic concentrations where you have one group of people who believe and live by one set of creeds immersed in the middle of a population that believes totally separate things and may have no connection to the first group? That seems bizarre. How does that happen? Well, that happens through history. That's how that happens. Okay. Remember, history is just stuff happening. Okay? That's all it really is. Stuff happens. And, you know, what historians try to do is to figure out presumably what some kind of significance to that. You know, what of that stuff happening was more significant than the other part? Or which will we place as as a cause as opposed to an effect? It's it's centuries, if not millennia, of migration and cross-migration and expulsions and wars, um, all of these things. I mean, the thing is, if you, you sort of look, you'll notice that the Kurds are pretty much sort of gathered together in that in that area that actually stretches all the way from northern Syria into southeastern Turkey and the northern Iraq and all the way over into western Iran. So that's one of the things to keep in mind is that the 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 mass of the current of the of the current Kurdish population, where most Kurds live, is that they live in this geographical region which is mostly but not exclusively full of Kurds. That's what they would call Kurdistan, which they would see as their ideal country if it existed. But the current reality is that that area of Kurdistan, that region in which most Kurds live is divided among four different countries. It's divided among the the largest proportion of Kurds, about half of them live in Turkey. And that's one of the reasons why Erdogan is very interested in the Kurdish question, because about 20% of of Turkey's population, the Republic of Turkey, isn't Turkish, it's Kurdish. And if you can see on this map, the Kurds actually inhabit really the sort of almost much of the southeastern quarter of Turkey. So when you get down towards the Syrian border, there aren't many Turks that live near the Turkish-Syrian border. Most of the people who live along that border are Kurds. That's a very important point because it means that there are Kurds on this, across the border in Syria, in northern Syria, and there are a lot more Kurds across the border in Turkey. So the relative numbers are something like this. The Syrian Kurds are the least numerous of the four groups. I've heard numbers there like, maybe, like about 4%. Uh, well, they're, they're a small part of, of Syria's population, but in terms of, of raw numbers, there's about 2 million of them. So Syrian Kurds number about 2 million. They live up in the north, up next to the Turkish border, which means, as they see it, they're actually living in in Kurdistan, which is split in that area by this Syrian-Turkish border. Hmm. In Turkey, there are about anywhere between 15 and 20 million Kurds. So more than half of all the Kurds live in Turkey. 
That will give you an idea as to why Erdogan and the Turkish government, and not just his regime, but many other Turkish regimes, are very concerned about Kurds because they're a large share of their population. Now, further to the east, in northern Iraq, again, all part of that large sort of russet or dried blood area in there, there are maybe six or seven million Kurds. But then the Kurdish area extends further to the east into western Iran, where there are another six or seven million. So if you added all the Kurds together, you've got somewhere between, I'd say, 35 million people, roughly. Somewhere between 30 and 40 million, probably closer to 40 than 30. It's difficult to get an exact number because the point <clears> is, is, is that Kurds are a minority in every one of those countries in which they live. They are not a favored minority. They are seen as, generally speaking, disloyal, inclined towards separatism. So even trying to get those governments to calculate the number of Kurds is a little tricky. But we're talking about a country which is – I mean France has uh, maybe between 50 and 60 million people. So we're talking about if you added all the Kurds together, you know, you're talking about a population that would probably be fairly close to that of Spain, you know, not that far off from, from Italy. And, and or California, or California. So the the Kurds have lived in this area for mm, probably for three thousand, maybe four thousand years. Uh, they went by other names in the past. Ethnically, this is another thing. The, ethnically, the Kurds, you know, in terms of the language they speak, uh, it's not like Turkish at all. They're not Turks. They don't speak a Turkic language. They're not Arabs. That also is very important. Kurds are not Arabs. They are not Turks. They are not Persians. <laughs> they are Kurds. They are close. They are related, though, linguistically and in some ways culturally, to the Persians, to the main group in Iran. So it's not. It's going too far to argue that there's a kind of any kind of real cultural sympathy between Iranians and Kurds, but they might get a slightly more positive response in Iran than they would elsewhere because of that cultural, because of some kindredness that exists between them. But otherwise, they're, they're a very distinct people. They have a very long history. They didn't move into the area yesterday. Uh, they often see it that they've been there long. You know, they always figured that they were there first and everybody else moved in. Uh, from the standpoint of the, Kur the Turks, that would be true. The Turks are fairly recent arrivals into that part. They've only been there for you know a thousand years or so. So the Kurds, their their plight, their curse in a way, is to live in an area in which they have always been essentially the subjects of states other than their own. There have been things like Kurdish dynasties. For instance, anybody who um, knows the history of the Crusades or anything about the sort of uh, history of that period might remember the name Saladin. Ah, yes. One of the, yes. yes, Saladin, sort of the great uh, Islamic hero of the Crusades, the fellow who recovered Jerusalem for Islam. Well, Saladin was a Kurd. Oh, my God. He wasn't, he wasn't an Arab, wasn't a Turk, wasn't a Persian, wasn't an Egyptian of any kind. He was a Kurd. So well, he, he, have, he, he, uh, we're actually coming to the bottom of the hour, so I want to yeah. pick up on a couple of questions when we come back. This is really important because, again, you know, in American media, these names and these nomenclatures pop up, and no one does a backstory like, who are these people, and why should we care? 
So I'll tell you what, let's, let's kind of pause it there. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence. We're talking about a population of around 30 to 40 million people, about the size of the state of California, distributed through many other political boundaries, many other countries. And it's the foundation for how we got to where we are tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. This is some actual real Turkish, uh, I'm sorry, Kurdish music. Enjoy. everyone to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, October 20th. Gosh, the year is really zipping by, isn't it? It's fall. And in fact, I think in the next week or two, we're going to be changing back to uh, standard times opposed to daylight savings, which means we fall back and we gain an hour in the morning and we lose an hour at night. Anyway, so Richard, um, uh, here's my big question. If the Kurds is an established ethnic, and, and you might want to define ethnicity in a moment, but if they're an established ethnic group with thousands of years behind them, why the hell haven't they created their own state in a planet where states 
are critical to protecting people and their cultures, customs, backgrounds, and ethnicity. Well, you know, here again, I can I can blame it on the uh, the the chaos machine of history. The, the Kurds, through all of the the centuries and millennia that they've existed, have basically existed as inhabitants of other people's empires. So they have been subjects of the ancient Persian Empire and the more modern Persian empires and the Byzantine Empire and Roman Empire and the Arab Empire uh, and the Ottoman Empire. So if we were to go back, you know, the last few hundred years, actually several hundred years, we go back to around 1500. Richard C. Hoagland. The... Go ahead. Yeah, if you go back to around 1500, you have the establishment of the Ottoman Empire. And well, that'll probably come up again this evening. <laughs> I'll bet it will. <laughs> and, you know, because it's kind of a big subject. The Ottoman Empire was an empire created by the Ottoman Turks. And that lasted until basically until World War One. World War One finished off the Ottoman Empire, and that was replaced by a, an array of so the Ottoman Empire, even up until the 20th century, controlled everything that's today Turkey, and Syria, and Iraq, and much of Arabia. Much of what's now Saudi Arabia was part of that. They even ruled Egypt for a time. Everything Israel, Palestine, Lebanon. All of that was part of it, essentially most of the Middle East. Everything basically between, let's say, Egypt and Iran was largely part of the Ottoman Empire. And the dominant group there, as you know, the Roman Empire was ruled by the Romans. The British Empire was ruled by the British. They had many, many other subjects. The Kurds were one of those people who for centuries most recently were included in the Ottoman Empire. So when you're talking about an ethnic group, you know, it's one of those terms get thrown around. Very loose, way too loosely. Um, you know, one of them that was a subject of one of our talks not that long ago was the whole idea of race. You know, what exactly are you talking about? I mean, how, how is race defined? Is, you know, is it defined by skin colors? Is it defined by language? Is it defined by, by culture? There, you know, there really isn't any clear definition. And if it, Kurds are Kurds for the same reason that French are French, Irish are Irish, I suppose Canadians are Canadians. Because they have the identity of being that. I don't really push it much more beyond that. I mean, essentially, ethnicity is a matter of, of on one level, personal identity. It's what it is that you identify as being. And generally, the reason that you identify with that is because that's what you were born into. Um, you were born into a family of people who identified as Kurds and a village of people who identified as Kurds in an area full of people who identified as Kurds. And so basically ethnicity is, is sharing a common identity with others, usually based upon, well, heredity, custom, language is very important. So the main way that you would identify someone who was a Kurd from someone who was a Turk in Turkey is what language they would speak among themselves. Um, Turks, for the most part, do not speak Kurdish unless there's some reason for them to do so. Kurds who are taught Kurdish, who are taught Turkish in school, because that's one of the things that the Turkish state demands. Remember, they are a subject minority may well speak both of those languages, but they'll still use Kurdish to speak to other Kurds. They're not going to use Turkish, essentially to them, a foreign language to speak to someone within their own community. 
So it's a kind of invisible thing. Now, if you were to travel through that area, you know, if you were to go down, you know, get it, go to Istanbul, go down through Ankara, head down towards the Syrian border, which I don't recommend at this particular point. Not right now, no. But if... But if you were heading down there, you wouldn't be able to, you know, it's not like people are walking around with little signs on, you know, <laughs> saying this person is a Kurd and this person is a Turk and that person is an Arab. People will tend to look, it would be very difficult to physically distinguish anyone. Um, that's generally recognized, again, it's generally, again, communicated by language. It can be communicated by other more subtle things than an outsider wouldn't notice. Sometimes it has to do with certain clothes that will be worn or the way in which they're worn. Um, you know, I, I could give you an example, not from that part of the world, because most of the people there are Muslims, they don't have crosses. But in the former Yugoslavia, in fact, in the what was a Republic of Yugoslavia, now an independent state, Bosnia, I did some traveling there in the 1970s and early 1980s, and that's back when Bosnia was part of good old bad old Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was supposed to be a land of socialist brotherhood among all the ethnic groups. But there are three main groups in Bosnia. There are the Orthodox Christian Serbs. There are the Muslim Bosniaks, which are basically Muslim Serbs. They speak the same language, but they have different religions and different customs. And then the third group were the Croatian Roman Catholics. So what you've got there were three people who were physically indistinguishable from each other. I mean, there was no way that a Bosnian Muslim and a Bosnian Serb and a Bosnian Croat really looked any different from each other. They tended to dress the same way. They basically spoke the same language. But the way in which I figured out they would distinguish, they would be able to recognize each other, and I'm trying to remember, one, I think it was the Orthodox Serbs would wear a silver cross. The Catholic Croats would wear a gold cross, usually on a chain around their neck. Hmm. And if you were a Muslim, you didn't wear a cross at all. Hmm. But that's the way, at a glance, if you were on a crowded train, which I spent a good deal of time on traveling through there, <laughs> if you were on a crowded train and you could look around, and once you knew what to look for, you could figure out who the Croats, the Serbs, and the Muslims were. Uh, although on one occasion, I was on a train and I was talking to a guy and some you know, pigeon of Serbo-Croatian, English, German, whatever else we were trying to throw together. And and I noticed the fact that he was wearing, I think it was a silver cross. And I said, "Oh, well, you're you're a Serb." And he goes, "Oh, no, no, no. Actually, I'm I'm not a Serb. I'm I'm a Muslim." <laughs> I go, oh. Well, then why why are you wearing the cross? And he goes, "Well, you know, I sort of I figured out that I'm like one of the few Muslims in this train car, and and if they figure out I am, I'll get beat up." Oh, <laughs> keep in mind, this was still under the communist government, where apparently things like that weren't supposed to happen. Very quality but they rule, happened. yeah. They happened all the time, and you know, he basically, you know, his idea was that, well, you know, I've got a silver one and I've got a gold one, so I can sort of become whatever is necessary in the circumstance. So that's when I realized that, well, you know, maybe this isn't quite as simple as it seems. Because you may have someone who's actually wearing a particular type of cross to sort of proudly identify what they are, or someone else who's pretending to be something so they won't get beat up. But that's, you know, ethnicity. So the same thing would be true um, for for the, you know, the, the 
Kurds, whether they, we're talking about the Kurds in Iran or in Iraq, uh, you know, the, the main thing, the difference between Kurds and everybody else in Iraq is the Kurds aren't Arabs. Um, there's a very strange, again, the, the languages are very different. They are Muslims, overwhelmingly. There, there are a few that are not, but essentially, they, what, what differentiates, they, differentiates the Kurds from the people around them are, isn't religion. Most Kurds are Sunni or Orthodox Muslims. Okay. And so it's they share that in common, but what separates them is, well, language, culture, and identity that's shaped by history. But the thing I want to go back to for a minute is we were talking about the Syrian Kurds, which are now the, the subject of much attention, are, again, are the smallest element in this Kurdish this larger Kurdistan. And therefore, whatever happens to them one way or the other is not going to resolve the so-called Kurdish question. That is, whatever happens, whatever becomes the political settlement involving two million Kurds in Syria is not necessarily going to have anything to do with the 15 to 20 million Kurds across the border in Turkey or the other perhaps 12 to 15 million Kurds further to the east in Iraq and Iran. It's a much bigger question than that. Mm. So I guess one of the things it comes down to is that what's happening now is that the Erdogan government in Turkey has launched a military incursion. They call it a peacekeeping mission. Of course. It's a, it's a military attack. It's um, an invasion of, of another which, country. It's an invasion of another country. But, but, it's, but keep in mind, the Turks have invaded northern Syria long before this. Uh, they occupied an area. If you go further to, I can see in this map particularly well. Well, yeah. If you go down to the map, which is at the bottom here, if you look at number four, which is the current. This was current as of a few days ago. The sort of military situation in Syria. So everything here is sort of color coded. So the yellow areas are areas that are controlled by what's called the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are basically the Kurds. Okay, it's a military political movement. It's not a government. It's not a country. The SDF is a military force behind it, a political group which is includes some Arabs, but is thoroughly run by the, by the Kurds, by those by the, the Syrian Kurds. The red areas are those controlled by the Syrian government. Assad. The Russian-backed Assad government, right. And then the green areas up in the north, if you look in the north of Turkey, those are the areas which the Turks have, are currently or in the past have invaded and occupied. So over to the left, if you sort of look up at the top, there's this green area in northern Syria, and there's this kind of corner area and that's actually an area called the Afrin region, A-F-R-I-N. And it was just a year or so ago, certainly within the last two years, that the Kurdish military – that is a Kurdish area, by the way. It, it's, this, this area shows political control. It doesn't show ethnicity. But that area, which is now controlled by the Turks and their proxies, was a very you – know, it was a pocket of Kurds 
which the Turks found unpleasant along their border. That's their whole problem. They don't like Turk. They don't like Kurds. They can't control along their borders because they're afraid they're going to stir up all those other Kurds on the other side of the border. Mm. They invaded and occupied that area with considerable violence, and essentially they're just extending that operation. So that's one of the things I want to make clear. They, the present Turkish operations aren't something new. They actually haven't started something they weren't doing before. They've just extended it to a different region. What Erdogan wants to do is to extend this green area all the way along Syria's northern border, and that's what he calls a safe zone. Like about 20 miles to... deep and a couple of hundred miles long along that border. Yeah, probably – I think it's like 400 kilometers overall, and, and I think it's varied between – yeah, about 20 miles deep. And this supposedly is going to provide a safe zone for Syrian refugees to all come and live happily ever after. That is not its point, okay? The, the Turkish military does not want any refugees in that area. They would probably like as much of the population gone as possible. What they want to do is to create a buffer zone. So it's Which like will, so it would be like a no man's land between North and South Korea, except with Turks on, uh, on on the police action, with the Turks and their Arab proxies in control, and in essence, it's a desire to sort of separate the Syrian Kurds from the Turkish Kurds. I mean, really, what Erdogan is doing is he's just pushing de facto. He's pushing the Turkish border further to the south. It's ethnic cleansing because they have to move, what, several hundred thousand people of the two million out of there? Well, I'm I'm sure that he would reply that they have no intention of displacing anyone, that uh, the the Turks and their their sort of Arab mercenary auxiliaries will move in, and no, you know, of course not. They're not going to push any... <clears throat> yeah, except the president in Fort Worth yesterday right? talked about Cleaning out the area. Ah, well, that would mean the but the the Turks and I think what probably Trump was referring to is is cleaning out all those nasty terrorists because that's what Erdogan argues that the border region has become infested with. Yeah, but I saw an interview with Kurdish terrorists this evening. Yeah. I earlier because prepping for the show, I saw an interview. With NBC with Erdogan, where one of the correspondents sat down one on one, and Erdogan said, There are no good Kurds. They're all terrorists, part of yes. the PKK, which is the Turkish Kurd, Kurdish party that tries yes. to maintain some kind of separation. So he views them all as terrorists, which means it's basically the only good terrorist is a dead terrorist. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of. This is political speak. All right. And I think you're absolutely right. In Erdogan's mind, the Kurds are, in Turkey and elsewhere, are an inherently disloyal group of people. That's his problem. So keep in mind that that takes us back to, you know, what is what's actually Erdogan's whole beef in this situation? His beef is that he has a large restive minority within his own country. You see, the, the, the big roots of the Kurdish problem isn't in Syria. That's a symptom. The cause is that across the border in Turkey, directly across that border, which runs through this area we'll call Kurdistan, and as far as the Kurds are concerned, artificially divide them between these foreign states. Across the border, between those 2 million Syrian Kurds, are 15 to 20 Turkish Kurds. Million. And there is 
there is a an insurrection which has been going on. It's kind of a low-level guerrilla war which has been going on for decades. And the organization which runs that anti-Turkish guerrilla war is called the PKK, which is the acronym for the Kurdistan Workers' Party, who are, by the way, if you want to go into politics, Marxists. There we go. They're <laughs> oh, nationalists, God, another, but they're also Marxists. Another yes. thing to throw in the pot. How many people in Turkey in total? Population? Uh, 70 million Maybe more. So we're talking a significant percentage of the Turkish population is not Turkish. Yes. Okay. And so, in the past, they would have been even more so. So the, the Kurds are the only large, significant non-Turkish minority that remains in Turkey. I mean, there are small groups of Albanians and Bulgarians and this and that. But basically, Turkey is a fairly homogenous country except for the Kurds. And that's one of the reasons why, not beginning with Erdogan, keep in mind, going all the way back really to the early part of this century when the Turkish Republic was created out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire. So this goes back to Ataturk? To Ataturk. It goes back to Kemal Ataturk, the, the, the daddy of modern Turkey, quite literally. That's what his name means, father of the Turks. Hmm. So Ataturk, a former Ottoman military officer, essentially became dictator of this new thing called the Republic of Turkey that arose up after World War I. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to create a Turkish national state. And there were some obstacles to doing that, uh, and those obstacles were primarily people who lived in the Turkish state that weren't Turks. And if you look at – it's not the best – if you go up and look at map number two, that sort of shows the same, much of the same region as is number one. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why these aren't clickable. Normally, Kintia makes them clickable, so maybe we can remedy that. And, the other um, way to do this is if you have these up on a screen, just make them full screen. And if you're on a computer, you just do, uh, you know, whatever you do to make things bigger on your <clears throat> particular browser. Because, yeah, the, the, the devil here is in the details that we can't quite see. And again, anyone who's in can just you know Google ethnic you know ethnic map of the Middle East and you'll find the one I have or one very similar to that. But what this the second map number two shows in 1914. This is before World War One. This this benchmark we keep coming back to is that the orange area is sort of those are the Osmanen. This is a German map for some reason, or the labels are in German. <laughs> those are the Turks. But you'll notice that there are all of these sort of blue areas uh, amongst the – so in a lot of the area where Kurds live now, that was the homeland before 1915 of the Armenians. And something else that there were still a few million of uh, in the Ottoman Empire in that period were Greeks who lived all scattered along the coast and in various pockets and different mountains. So in 1914, when it was the Ottoman Empire, the area that would later – form the Republic of Turkey, only a small part of that empire, actually had Turks, Kurds, Armenians in considerable numbers, and Greeks. Now what happened in the course of the First World War and the area and the few years immediately following is that the Armenian and Greek populations in Anatolia were basically exterminated or expelled. So that there were virtually none of them left. And I think as many of your listeners probably have heard, 
uh, one of the things that occurred in the Ottoman Empire in this part of the world during the First World War was the 20th century's, well, not its first genocide, but its first really sort of systematic state-orchestrated genocide. Uh, and that was orchestrated by the Ottoman government against the Armenians, which largely eliminated the Armenian population in what would later become Turkey. Do you know where a large number of Americans first heard about this? On Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry, in one of his early scripts, actually wrote a reference to the Armenian Holocaust in one of those original Star Trek programs and got a lot of attention because most Americans don't get taught this history in any kind of high school or college class, but it was the pre-Holocaust Holocaust of the 20th century. Yes, I mean, it wasn't one of those. The, the argument over it today, um, and, and by the way, it is essentially illegal in Turkey to say that there was ever such thing as an Armenian genocide. Mm. You can be arrested for that. Um, I probably couldn't go there <laughs> if I was inclined <laughs> to do so. I, you know, I'm pretty sure my name is probably on a list somewhere um, because I, I've, I've given a couple of public talks about that. But that's one of the things. The argument isn't that, well, you know, there were a lot of Armenians and now there aren't any Armenians. But the, you know, the general argument is that, well, you know, it was just kind of accidental. It happened during the war. There was a lot of chaos going on. There were a lot of bullets flying around. A lot of Armenians just kind of wandered off into the desert and died. <laughs> I mean, mm. that, 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 that literally was an explanation I heard <laughs> once um, from a, a proponent of the Turkish position is that, well, the Armenians, you know, just just wandered off into the desert and died. And it, there wasn't anything that the that the Ottoman Turkish army or government was involved in this. This was just sort of the Armenians being stupid. Um, that's See, I, I've heard that same yeah. reference to, you know, Kurds dying in the desert because winter's coming on. And because of this invasion by Erdogan, there's going to be – there's already a couple of hundred thousand on the move, migrating, leaving. There's refugees because of the coming invasion. But again, of those two million in northern Syria, how many hundred thousand are going to be have to go somewhere or they will die? Well, think of it this way. From what I was just described about the history of the region, okay, the, the history – now, keep in mind, during the Armenian genocide and the, the genocide of, of the Pontic Greeks, as they were called, and then later their expulsion from the Republic of Turkey, the Kurds weren't really bothered by that. And, and to be perfectly honest, the Kurds to some degree benefited from it because in eastern Anatolia – this is one of these things that often you know people don't want to talk about – the eastern Anatolia before – the First World War, was largely populated by Kurds and Armenians who did not get along. Mm. And in fact, it's, uh, there was Kurdish participation in the Armenian massacres uh, as directing out. The whole thing was under the control of the Ottoman state. But Kurds did participate on the side of those who were carrying out the massacres. There was not in some sort of solidarity. Mm. So to some extent, there were areas opened up which expanded actually the the habitable area con controlled by Kurds. So, so initially they seem to have weathered that, but here's the problem. They then became the only significant ethnic minority 
in a national, the new national state of the Republic of Turkey. And Ataturk, his, his approach to them in the 20s and the 30s, when the new Turkish state was created, was that Kurds simply didn't exist. They were called Mountain Turks. Right? There was no such thing as a Kurd. There was no Kurdish population. They were simply Mountain Turks, which meant that they were essentially sort of ignorant hill people who simply hadn't realized that they were Turks yet. And therefore, it was going to be the goal of the new republic's educational system to inculcate them with a Turkish identity. So for decades, under the Republic of Turkey, not just under Ataturk, but continuing on in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and up into the 70s, really up into the present, there has been a systematic effort to try to decurticize the Kurds. That is, to essentially convince them through education, through social coercion, through induction into the military, uh, through the, requirements of speaking and using Turkish, that they are Turks, not Kurds. That has not worked. Of course not. Identity In is fact, the most important thing people have. Well, see, one of the things, again, one of these little uh, you know, perverse rules of history is that if you set out to try to destroy an ethnic identity uh, without destroying the people. If you simply try to eradicate, in other words, if you, if you penalize being Polish, Kurdish, Irish, whatever it might be, what you're more than likely to do is you're going to not eradicate that identity. You're going to intensify it because now you've made it something that people will feel required to defend the thing is that people often don't get particularly excited about something if it's not threatened. Threaten it, and suddenly it becomes a much bigger deal than it was previously. So the net effect of this is that the Turkish Republic has never assimilated the Kurds. It has continuously marginalized and persecuted their political and cultural leadership. I'm not saying this to turn them into martyrs, because again, we're not talking about angels and devils. We're just talking about human beings. But the modern Turkish state has attempted to break the identity and the will of the Kurds through most of the 20th century and into the 21st. And the current situation is, you know, you reap what you sow. Uh, they sowed hostility and resentment, and they have a population that uh, in large part the Kurdish population, which hates being part of the Republic of Turkey, would like to be something else, and uh, which is engaged in a low-level insurrection. And that's what Erdogan is fighting. He's fighting his own people. Mm. I'll tell you he's what, hold, fighting hold, that war. Hold it there at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're trying to – he's trying to elucidate a very confusing ethnic situation compounded on – 20th century politics, land grabs, dictators, tin-pated illusions of godhood, as someone once said. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows, 
that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>